Good morning again. We've, we'll be continuing our, our study this morning in the book of Colossians. And what we've seen as we have been going through the book of Colossians is we've seen Paul, the apostle, addressing error that is creeping into the church. And now, Paul addresses this error, this falsehood, he addresses it in a way that is wonderful for us, because he doesn't just say, stop doing this, or don't do that, but he instead redirects their attention to the truth, right? The way that you refute error, the way that you refute falsehood, is you draw people's attention to the truth, and so that's what Paul's been doing. Over and over we've seen, especially when he started his uh, great description of Christ, we've seen Christ in his supremacy, how he is supreme over all creation in chapter 1. He's supreme over all the new creation, that includes us, the church, and the reconciliation of the world in its full extent when he comes back. We've seen how Paul focuses his ministry on the Word of God. Because it's about the truth. And we talked about the centrality of God in the beginning of chapter 2, how Christ is central to all ministry of church activity. And then last time I spoke, a couple weeks ago, we we talked about and we began a section starting in chapter 2, verse 6, that dealt with the supremacy, sorry, the sufficiency, I apologize, the sufficiency of of Jesus Christ. That Jesus is sufficient for us that we don't need anything else. And I spoke a little bit about this in verses 6 through 8 or 6 through yeah, 6 through 8 where the apostle Paul calls on these believers to walk, to live out what they have learned, right? To walk. And then he gives them a warning. So you could say it's a walk and a warning. A walk as you know, live out what you've learned, and then watch out for this phil- the philosophical systems of this world, the philosophy that seeks to pull you out of the purity of your devotion to Jesus Christ. So he gives a walk and a warning. Well, today we're going to be looking at verses 9 through 15, or if we make it that far, we're going to be looking at this, and we're going to be looking at the sufficiency of Christ, part 2, the antidote to philosophy, their antidote to error. Now, there are certain events in our lives where you can kind of say, well, I remember where I was. Right? I remember talking to my grandfather as a young boy, and, and he remembers, or he remembered, he's going home to be with the Lord, where he was when the Jap- Japanese bombed Pearl Harbor. Right? It's one of those events that he'll never forget. Now, in my own life, I remember where I was, as a, obviously as an American, when 9-11 happened, when the plane slammed into the two towers, I'll never forget watching that on the screen. I'll never forget where I was. While all of that was going on, the Federal Aviation Administration made the unprecedented step to ground every single aircraft above the United States. I don't know if many of you know this. They grounded every flight Immediately, as fast as they could land them, the nearest airport, every plane was to land because they didn't know how many of these planes terrorists had taken control of. So they landed over 4,000 flights. Well, while this was going on, there was a, there was a snake handler 
by the name of Lawrence Van Sittema, who was in Miami, Florida, and he was bitten by his very first snake, a taipan snake, which is one of the most deadliest in the world. And because of the grounding of flights, he couldn't take a helicopter ride to the hospital, so it took him 40 minutes to get to the Miami hospital. And once there, the Miami Baptist Hospital told him, well, we don't have the specific antidote. We don't have the specific antivenom that we need. The only one that we could possibly get is in San Diego, California. Now, I know for, for Australians and in geography, it'd be like Perth to Sydney, right? So the only way they could get this antidote was to get it from San Diego. So they, they basically called up the FAA and said, we need some help. And so the FAA allowed a plane to take off, escorted by two U.S. fighter jets to travel from San Diego all the way across the continental United States to Miami. And within 45 minutes of the plane landing, they'd given him the antidote, and he actually recovered from this dangerous snake bite. The only plane that was allowed to fly for the rest of that day into the next was that one plane delivering the antidote and the antivitam to this young man. You see, there's a poison that you ingest daily and you don't even realize it, right? It's the poison of this world. You see, this world system that we live in is antithetical and opposed to truth. It's opposed to God and everything God stands for. Paul calls this teaching, this, this philosophical system, philosophy. It's, it's not just a series of intellectual beliefs, but it's also how people live out their lives. We would, we would also call this worldviews, your worldview. So anything that is opposed to the truth of God is falsehood and error. In 2 Corinthians 4.4, 4, Satan is said to blind the minds of unbelievers so they cannot see the light of the gospel. 1 Corinthians 2 says that the unbelieving mind cannot understand or accept spiritual things apart from the Holy Spirit's illumination. Romans 1 says that unbelievers suppress the truth in unrighteousness and they become futile in their speculations. Colossians 1.21 says that unbelievers are alienated to God and hostile in their minds. And the Apostle Paul, excuse me, the Apostle John says. In 1 John 3, that there are only two types of people in this world. There's children of God and children of the devil. So every day is a battle for your mind, right? All those times when you're looking on social media, when you're watching the television, when you're surfing the net, there's a battle being waged for your mind and you're slowly ingesting that poison. And it's so subtle that you don't even realize it. That's why it's, it, it, it's so important for us to spend time in the Word of God, renewing our minds, because the Word of God, the truth, is the antidote for that poison that you ingest on a daily basis. You don't even realize how subtle you accept the world's ideas about the elementary principles of this world, as Apostle Paul says in Colossians 2.8. You see, that's why we study the Bible. Right? That's why we come to your preaching, we go to Bible studies, is we want to have our mind renewed. We want to understand what the truth is. And truth in its basic definition is reality as God sees it. It's just the reality of our existence. God's Word, God tells us about who we are, how we were created, how we fell into sin, the condition of this world, the why there's pain, why there's suffering, why there's evil. The truth gives us those things. 
we're all perpetrators of sin and victims of sin. Or to say it another way, we all sin against others and we all are sinned against. Right? It's the Bible that gives us that truth, that tells us why the world is in a state of condition and corruption and decay. It tells us our purpose in life and ultimately our future destiny. 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 3 says that through Jesus Christ we have everything we need for spiritual life and godliness. And that's the point that Paul is making here in Colossians chapter 2. As Paul begins addressing more specifically this error that the false teachers were promoting, he he points these believers to the truth. The philosophical system that they were tempted with, the the syncretic system that combined Greek philosophy and Roman pagan worship and Jewish thought with kind of a New Age asceticism, kind of a a, a buffet, as you will, of, of, of thought, a buffet worldview, if you want to even call it that, It wasn't just that intellectual precept, but it was a complete way of life for these believers, excuse me, these these pagans. Because what we believe always affects how we live. And that's the subtle thing with this world. We either accept this world's ideas or we believe the truth. And we'll get more about this specifically a little bit later. But in order to... to, um, get their attention, Paul draws them to the point that they have everything they need in Jesus Christ. Now, in Colossians 2, 6-15, we're emphasizing the sufficiency of Jesus Christ for the believer. Jesus Christ is sufficient for us to live out the lives that God would have us to live. You don't need anything else because He is revealed to us in Scripture and we have the Word of God. And to... Verses 6 through 8, we looked at Paul's instructions to live out the truth and be watchful. And now we're going to be looking at Colossians chapter 2, verses 9 through 15. And like I said, I've titled this section, The Antidote to Error. And there's basically two points. We're going to look at the source of truth and the fact that we are complete in that truth. So let's go ahead and look at the passage. We're going to be starting in Colossians chapter 2. We're going to be starting in verse 9. Actually, we'll start at verse 8. See that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception according to the tradition of men, according to the elementary principles of the world, rather than according to Christ. For in Him all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form, and in Him you have been made complete, and He is the head over all rule and authority. And in Him you were also circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, in the removal of the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. Verse 12, "...having been buried with Him in baptism, in which you also were raised up with Him through faith in the working of God, who raised Him from the dead. When you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, He made you alive together with Him, having forgiven us all our transgressions, having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us, which was hostile to us, and he has taken it out of the way, and he nailed it to a cross. And when he had disarmed the rulers and authorities, he made a public display of them, having triumphed over them through him. So, the first way that Paul contradicts or combats the error that is besetting these believers is he points out that you have, they have the ultimate source of 
truth. And that's through Jesus Christ. He says, verse 9, For in Him all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. So he makes two very specific points here. He says that Jesus is God and that Jesus is man. You have, you have everything you need. If you have Christ, you have God. Right? So he says, first of all, Jesus is God. He says, in Him, he's very emphatic here. In the Greek, it begins the sentence with, in Him. He's like, he's like listen, in Him, in Him alone. That's the point, right? In Him and Him alone dwells is all the fullness of deity, right? The word dwells is the permanent home. We're talking about the incarnation, right? The, the, Jesus was fully God. He wasn't... 50-50, it wasn't 25-75, it wasn't the Spirit of God descending on the man Jesus, as some heretics say. Jesus was fully God and fully man. And what it means by fullness, fullness is the, is the sum total, the very essence of God. Right? There's no doubt who Jesus is. In fact, going to, it's interesting that Steve brought up Luke 22, when the, the Pharisees were putting Jesus on trial, uh, the, the Sanhedrin, they, they said, tell us plainly, you, are you the Son of God? Jesus says, I am. Jesus didn't struggle with identity issues. He knew exactly who he was and why he was here, and he proclaimed his deity. So the sum total, the very essence of God, right? The revelation of all God's divine attributes in the Old and New Testament are found in Jesus Christ. When you think about an attribute of God, you can think about Jesus Christ, right? Or to put it another way, it is vain for us to seek to know God apart from Jesus Christ. I recently saw a particular statement, a particular article by a prominent preacher in the United States, and he said that Muslims worship the same God as Christians. And that's not true. We, Allah is not Yahweh. Allah is not God, right? And the reason is, is that if you don't accept Jesus Christ and His deity, then you're not accepting a biblical view of who God is. We worship a Trinitarian God. He's one God in three persons, Jesus is fully God. The Father is fully God. And the Holy Spirit is fully God. Right? In, in an inscrutable, and under, uh, uh, not understandable union. Right? We can't fully understand that. But we know that all the fullness of deity rests in Jesus Christ. Okay? When I was in Boy Scouts, one of the things they taught us as we were camping, and, and they were like, if all possible, when you're camping, you always want to go to closest to the source of a river or a lake, a stream, a water source, you always want to go as close to the source of that stream at all possible, if you can. Because that's where you get the purest water, right? If you go downstream, you never know what's upstream, right? You never know what people are putting in the water, what's happening upstream. You want to go as far upstream as possible because the closer you are to the source, the, the purer the water is. Well, Jesus Christ is the Son of God, and He is the source of all truth. John 14, says, 6, He says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except by Me. Later in John 17, 17, in the high priestly prayer, Jesus asked the Father, He says, Sanctify them in truth. 
And he says, your word is truth. If God is truth, right, Jesus is truth and the word of God is truth, then the word of God accurately testifies to who Jesus is. Right in the Old Testament, it was hidden in a mystery. But in the New Testament, it's been revealed clearly to us. Jesus is truth. Right? The Word of God is a, a faithful revelation of who He is. And as we obey the truth, we renew our minds with the truth, we speak the truth, we become more like Jesus Christ, the truth. We become truthers, if you want to use that term, right? We live out the truth, we believe the truth, we speak the truth. Right? So all the fullness of deity dwells in Jesus Christ. There is no doubt, this is one of the most clearest verses in all of Scripture, that Jesus was and is God. Right? Jehovah's Witnesses come to your door, knock on the door, they want to talk to you. Taken from this particular passage. All the fullness of deity dwells in Him. Right? He is not just a man. But He is a man. Paul affirms this. He says, not only is all the fullness of deity, but all of it dwells in bodily form. It's a permanent home. Jesus says, I am the Son of Man. He says the same thing in the Luke 22 passage. right? Jesus was fully man and is fully man for all eternity. He, he made an addition to Himself. He added flesh. Right? He was conceived by the Holy Spirit. He was without sin. The word for that is impeccable. Right? He was without sin. He was conceived by the Holy Spirit. He wasn't conceived. He wasn't a son of Adam. He's a son of God. Right? So he didn't have a sinful flesh. He, had, he still had the flesh itself. He was a fully man. But he didn't have that sinful nature that we have. Right? And there was that hypostatic union. There was, uh, there was that tension. There was the God nature and the man nature within him. Right? And if Jesus had a body, by the way... Then, then that knocks out the Gnostic heresy. The Gnostic heresy believed that matter is evil, right? So you can do whatever you wanted to in your body because matter is evil, the body's evil, and it doesn't really matter because all that matters is the soul, right? Well, Jesus had a body, so the body itself, the matter isn't evil. It's a sin nature that we have that's the issue. You see, Jesus was fully and is fully man. He's a great high priest, what a blessing that is. In Hebrews 4.15, it says, He can sympathize, He can empathize with us in our, in our temptations, our sufferings, our trials, because He had a human body. He has a human body. Now, He, have, he has a glorified body, but He has a human body. He will be the Son of Man for all eternity. Right? How cool is that? That when you're going through trials and temptations, Jesus was tempted to the nth degree. Paul says in Corinthians that, that God only allows us to be tempted to what we can bear, right? Because we would easily fall if we had the maximum amount of temptation in a particular area. We would easily fall, right? We think about it, Jesus had, didn't have a sin nature, so he received the maximum temptation, right? He had Satan himself take him up to the heights of the temple and said, I'll give you, give you the world if you'll worship me. Like we would have fallen instantly, but all right, let's do it. Right? Jesus had the maximum temptation. What a blessing it is that as the Son of Man, that Jesus can empathize and sympathize with us. He is fully God and He's fully man. So when you're dealing with 
error, we have the source of truth. Right? We can know what God would have us to do for our lives. We can understand who He is. We can understand His will. We can understand the nature of this world. As Paul says, the elementary principles of this world. Right? We don't have to wander and stumble in darkness like the unbelievers. Right? So when you're watching TV and you're surfing the net in your own social media and, and people make claims, the Holy Spirit will use the Word of God that you've studied. You'll, you'll, you're, I call them those alarm bells in your mind. You get those alarm bells. Ding, ding, ding. This doesn't sound right. I might not fully understand it or can explain it, but it goes against something I've read. Ah, you know what? When, when people in this world say, for example, they say, look, there's, there's a... Gender and sex are two different things, and you can struggle with your, your, your sexuality and your gender, and it's fluid. That's not a biblical concept. Genesis says that God created man male and female, and male and female, He created him, right? There's just man and woman, right? There's no third gender, can't identify as something else, right? It's the world that we live in that creates the confusion. Right? You don't have to be confused, and that leads us to... The second point. So the, the first point is that we have the source of truth in verse 9. We don't have to turn anywhere else. The second point is that we are complete in Jesus Christ. I look down at verse 10. He says, In Him you have been made complete. And He is the head of all rule and authority. Well, what does that mean? What does completion mean? Right? What does completion mean? Well, it's a, it's a state of being. It's brought about by Jesus Christ. He's rescued us from the kingdom of darkness. He's transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son in Colossians 1.13. But basically, completeness means that you have no lack of what you need to live your life. Right? I love Psalm 23. You guys, most of us say Psalm 23 immediately. If you were a kid, you memorized as a kid. I memorized it in the King James. Uh, it shows you how long ago I memorized it. But, you know, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Right? Well, the word there in Hebrew is interesting. It doesn't mean that He gives us everything we want. It means I shall not be lacking what I need. That's the idea. We are complete in Christ. We have what we need. We have a bountiful life in Him. In every circumstance in your life, you have what you need. Think about Job. Job lost it all, but he still had everything he needed. And that was God Himself and God sustaining. Only God blessed him in the end. But it's not what we have that completes us, right? It's not what we get. It's not another person. You know, one of the things that single ladies and single men struggle with is they struggle with the idea that I have to be married to complete myself or be complete, right? I knew a, I knew a guy I was in seminary with him, and he had that mentality. It was, oh, I got to get married. I got to get married. You know, I, that's the one thing lacking in my life. I need to get married. And, and he met a godly woman, and, and they got married. And then he realized, and I talked to him after, he's, he's like, Mar- how's marriage? It's great. But I still feel like there's something missing in my life. I mean, it is. It's a deep relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, he's since come to understand that fully, and they have a good marriage. And, 
But that was hard. You, you talk to, I've talked to the single, because uh, I've counseled youth and done college ministry for many years, and you counsel a lot. It's always college students. They're like, oh, I have to get married. If I only find the perfect woman, I'm like, like, there's no perfect woman because you're not a perfect man. What are you thinking? You know, they're shopping on the wrong aisle. So, you know, there, <laughs> there's the idea of like, uh, you know, I've got to find this woman. If I only find this girl, I, you know, I'll, life will be good for me. I'll be complete. You know, same thing with ladies. If I only find this guy, I'll be complete. Like, marriage is a wonderful thing. I've been married over 17 years. So don't get me wrong. I'm not knocking marriage. But we're complete in Christ. We find our identity in Christ. One of the things I always counsel these, these college students, say, look, you need to work on your relationship with Jesus Christ. You need to grow in that relationship. You need to be so content in that relationship so where if you're single or you're married, it doesn't matter your condition, that you are content in Christ. And then if God brings a woman and God brings a man in your life, wow, Shazam, that's a great blessing. Right? I knew a, I knew a guy in seminary. He got, got married and he, he, uh, within a year, they found out his wife had cancer, and his wife died within a year of marriage. It was a sad, sad situation, right? My heart, you know, our hearts went out for him, or went out to him, excuse me. Um, but he also understood, I'm completing Christ. What a blessing it is to me, have this woman in my life for the short amount of time. What a, what a, what a great joy we've had together. She's going on to be with the Lord, but I'm still completing Christ. Right? You have everything you need. You're, in other words, it's talking about satisfaction. You have everything you need that's necessary to live the Christian life. As a Christian, we have the Holy Spirit. He enlightens our minds so that we can understand truth. All right? You don't need the, the church government, church body in the sense of the, the Catholic idea of the church to interpret the Scripture for you, to help you to, to know your place in this world. You can understand the Scriptures through the Holy Spirit. Now, God gives teachers to, to encourage and help along that process. But you have the Holy Spirit. right? You can understand what it means to fulfill His will and not only f- understand it, but you can live it out. Paul says in Ephesians 3 that the Holy Spirit, he prays the Holy Spirit would empower these believers, the Ephesians. And the same prayer is for us that the Holy Spirit empowers us to live out the truth. So you have everything necessary. But if we have everything necessary, right, and we're complete in Christ, then the presupposition is that if you're apart from Christ, what? You are incomplete. I love what Christ says in John 7, he says, uh, after he's performed the feeding of the, the 5,000, the crowd chases him down, and, and they, basically, they basically ask him, and they say, look, what can we do? What can we do to do the works of God? In other words, the, the question is very subtle, but what they mean is, what can we do? In fact, I'll quote it. What shall we do so that we may work the works of God. In other words, what may we do to have salvation? What, what religious practice, what religious work should we do, or can we do to have this eternal life that you say you offer, which Jesus offered to them in the verse above? Right? Well, Jesus says, well, here's the work. Here's his response. He says, this is the work of God that you believe in him who he has sent. Right? 
So there's an incompleteness. He says, look, and out, from out of your innermost being, he continues, will flow rivers of living water. So we are fountains, and out of us flow the truth. Put it another way. If you're an unbeliever, you make no eternal significance, no eternal difference. Do you realize that? As a believer, you make and you have an eternal significance individually, but you make an eternal difference in people's lives as you speak truth, as you live out truth. Think about how unbelievers approach death and they, they donate money to have their names put on buildings, right? They do altruistic works. They build giant pyramids, right? Because they want to live forever. They want to make some kind of difference in this world. But as believers, we have the fountain of truth flowing out of us. Right? As we are in, enveloped in the truth, as we're complete in Christ, as we're speaking truth, living out truth, we make a difference in people's lives. Right? You, the, the gospel changes people. Right? It doesn't mean you do that. You don't do the work. God does the work. We're faithful to, to just be obedient, to share. But when you're planting seeds... Right? Alex working with the kids and the teachers. They're planting seeds that, that bear fruit years from now. Right? Children's ministry. One of my one of my hobby horses I was involved is, you know, the children's ministry workers, they don't get the glory. Right? The youth ministers and the college ministers get the glory. How many how many people did you have get saved this past year? Ah, oh, baptized fifteen people. We don't baptize the little kids, but we're laying the foundation. We're making an eternal difference, those who work with kids. Right? So, you're incomplete if you're apart from Him. There's a hole in the being of man that, we, that mankind excuse me, are constantly trying to feel. It's a data, dissatisfaction with life apart from God. They try to make a name for themselves through glory, altruism, or even infamy. You ask some of these, these young people, and it's sad, you know, why did you do that? Like the United States, the Columbine shooters that, that you know, shot up schools and, you know, t- they left notes. They wanted infamy. They wanted to be remembered in their life with something because they, it's a hopeless life, right? They figured out, oh, if I can't be famous, maybe I can be infamous, which is sad. But it shows a life of no hope. So unbelievers are incomplete. But what it also means is we have an identity in Christ. That completeness gives us an identity. We are in Christ. In fact, we are a new creation. The old has passed away. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says that, that the old life, what is old, has passed away and we are a new creation in Christ Jesus. We no longer were, or, excuse me, we no longer are what we were, Right? We are no longer, we no longer have that sin, right? That sinful bent, that sin nature. Right? We still have the flesh. We still struggle with the flesh, and we will have the flesh until Jesus Christ comes back and we have a glorified body. But we no longer have that disposition, that bent towards sin. Right? We are a new creation. I'll put it to you like this. We're, because I've heard people say, oh, I can be a, a homosexual Christian. All right? Can you be a, a murdering Christian? 
Can you be a lying Christian, a thieving Christian? You can't, a fornicating Christian, you can't take one sin and say, well, I can, I can be both. I can keep my foot on the line and I can, I can have both. I can have the, the sinful, sinful bend and sinful desires and, and sinful actions and I can call myself a Christian. No, as a Christian, we have a new nature in Christ. Right? That's how we're complete. We're new. We've taken off the old. And I keep telling my grab my jacket because Paul says in Colossians, we've taken off the old clothes and we put on the new. Put on the new man. We have a new purpose. And that purpose in 1 Corinthians 10, 31, so we glorify Him. And to use the Westminster Catechism, we, we enjoy Him forever in Psalm 73. That's our, our goal. We were singing the song that Christ will be mine forevermore. Right? We have a new purpose. Unbelievers don't have a purpose. If we flip it, what purpose does an unbeliever have? It's to gratify his lusts. Why are people floundering around in this life? They have no purpose and no direction. It's like a ship without a rudder, just floating along. We have a new purpose. We have a new goal. What's our goal as Christians? That goal is to be conformed to Christ's image. Romans 8.29 says our ultimate goal is, is, is to be like Christ. What's your goal as an unbeliever? Get as much stuff as you can. Have a good time. It's like Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, if the resurrection doesn't hap- hasn't happened, then we're to be pitied and we might as well live today and have fun because tomorrow we die. We have a new family, right? We have the body of Christ. Christ has taken us a forever family that He's united us all together. What a great time it's going to be tonight at the international dinner when we celebrate the fact that we're from everywhere, right? But we're all united in Christ. We have a family. So many people now, and I bet if I, I went to each one of you, you there's, I, bet, I bet over half in here have come from either broken homes, homes with one family, one, one, like a mother, no father, father, no mother, divorce situations. I bet more than half in here would have that kind of home life, right? So many people, they, they look in there and their families are, are in shambles and shattered because of sin. We have a new family. It's all about our identity in Christ. We have a new hope, right? We have eternity with Christ forevermore. We have rewards that are undefiled, imperishable, reserved in heaven, unfading. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3. If you're an unbeliever, you have no hope. I saw a sign over there off of uh, Northeast Road, and it said, uh, it said, Hope, hang on pain ends. Right? And that's encouraging, right? That the pain does end. But what if it doesn't? Right? What if it's cancer and the pain doesn't end? And then you die. Right? Where's the hope in that? Just, just wait till the pain ends, and then that's, that gives you some hope. Right? We all know this. The bodies we live in decay. Right? Some of us have decayed a little bit more than others. But we, all, we are in states of decay. Paul says the outer man decayeth, the inner man is renewed. Right? That's not hope. We have a new hope. You see, we're complete in Christ. We have a new life. Colossians 3, we have a new life in Him. We don't have to live for ourselves. We don't have to live wandering around. We have a purpose. We have a goal. We have new life. We have a new destiny. As Steve so 
succinctly said, if you die apart from Jesus Christ, there is no hope for you. You're dead spiritually. You're separated from Him forever. Revelation chapter 19, the great white throne judgment, all those whose name are not found written in the book of life will be thrown into the lake of fire for burning torment forever apart from God's presence. But for those that do know Jesus Christ, we have Revelation 21. That God will tabernacle among His people and He will dwell in our midst forever. We also have a new ally in the sense that if you look down in verse 10, he says, He is the head over all rule and authority. And that's Paul's point here. He said, you're complete in Christ, but he said, you also have an ally. You, you, nothing can take you out of his hand. You don't have to worry about demons. You don't have to worry about angelic powers. You don't have to worry about anything that's opposed to you from a spiritual standpoint because you have Christ. You're complete in him. You have everything you need. You don't have to worry about satanic influences, right? We know there's satanic influence in this world. Right? The, word, the world is said to lie in the power of Satan. He is the ruler, the God of this age. God in his sovereignty, because Adam's sin, Adam abrogated his proper role as domination, a, a dominant um, ruler over this earth in God's plan. Because of Adam's rebellion, Satan is the ruler of this earth. doesn't mean God's not sovereign, but... but This is Satan's domain. That's why Peter says we're aliens. We're strangers. We're sojourners. This is our temporary home. We're pilgrims making progress, if you will. So, brethren, you have the source of truth. You have no need of anybody to tell you anything opposed and apart from the Word of God. You have Jesus Christ. That's Peter's first point combating error. He said, you have Jesus Christ. He is fully God. He's fully man. He's the source of truth. You can trust the Word of God because the Word of God is truth. You have everything you need for life and godliness in Christ. And not only that, but you... Were made complete. You don't need somebody else, right? It's a wonderful thing. You have a husband, spouse, you have good friends, you have a church family, right? You don't need those things. Those are blessings. You have Jesus Christ. You're complete in Him. You've been united in Him, in union with Him, and in union with every one of us. We're all union, in union together. Augustus Strong, the famous Baptist, uh, back in the 1800s in the States, he wrote a systematic, he says, he calls it an inscrutable union that we have with Jesus Christ. You know, you scrutinize something, you're looking at it, you're trying to understand it. It's it's hard to understand. It's inscrutable. It's hard to describe how we're, we're joined with Jesus, and He's also indwelling us by His Spirit, and as we've joined with Jesus, we're in Him, and we've been joined together with other people in one body. We have our spiritual life through Him, the parable of the vines, right? We have our spiritual life in Christ. He, it, we're, we're crucified in Christ. We, we live out the spiritual life, and He empowers us. 
And we're connected to each other. We're connected to Him and we'll be in union with Christ for all eternity. Right? Try thinking about that for a little while blow your mind. Right? It's inscrutable. It's a mystery that's been revealed in the New Testament. So brethren, you, you have the truth and you're complete. Because Jesus Christ is the antidote to error. Right? A.W. Tozer says, The unattended garden will soon be overrun with weeds, and the heart that fails to cultivate truth and root out error will shortly be a theological wilderness. See, Jesus Christ is the only source of truth for us in this world. It's His Word. He's given His Word to us. That's why we study it. Without His Word, you will not grow and you will wither, right? You will stumble and you will fall. It's, it's almost like if you imagine you have a, have a torch and you're turning your torch on in the darkness and you can see and you got light clearly shining in the darkness and you cut the torch off and you're stumbling around, bumbling and rumbling and running into stuff and you're falling. It's because you're not going to the source of light, the source of truth, which is the Word of God in your life. If you ignore the truth, you will fall into error. There's no theological gray areas. We have God's Word and we have this world. Right? You're either renewing your mind, Romans 12, right? renewing your mind with the truth of the Word of God, or you're being conformed to this world. That's why I say there's a slow poison, because you're either being poisoning your mind, conforming to this world, or you're renewing your mind. There's no middle ground, right? You want to grow as a Christian, you want to know Jesus Christ, then it requires personal discipline. It requires effort, right? God doesn't tolerate laziness. What a joy it is, believers, that we have Jesus Christ and we are complete in Him. Next week, we're going to deal with how we're complete. We're going to deal with verses 11 through 15. We only made it a couple of verses this morning. This particular passage is so packed with Christology that I wanted to make sure we took the time to, to deal with it properly. Let's go ahead and go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You that oh, we have You, O Lord Jesus Christ, as our Savior, that You are fully God and fully man. That You were capable of being our sacrifice because of your sinless life. That you sacrificed yourself as the Lamb of God, as a propitiation for our sins, as the wrath of God was poured upon you, you bore our shame, you bore our guilt. And it's by believing in this work, your sacrifice, that we can have redemption, the forgiveness of sins, that we can be reconciled with you. Father, I thank You for Your Word. I thank You that we are complete, that we do not need anything else. We have You. Father, help us to resist sin, resist temptation, resist error, resist this world. Give us the dedication, the discipline to renew our minds with the Word of God, the truth. We thank You for this day. We, we just praise You. In Jesus' name, amen.